Good morning, God's people. What a joy to worship the Lord together with you this morning. I'm so thrilled to be part of this World Fest series, which reminds us of our Christian responsibility uh, to uh, involve in the Great Commission. And I'm thankful for the leadership of the church for allowing me to speak to you this morning. Um, now you have figured out that I'm not a native English speaker. So you know how to forgive my accent and bear with me as I speak. And if there is any serious prayer request in the room this morning, that is mine. That you should pray that I will finish my sermon on time. <laughs> this is my family. They are in the other church. I haven't brought them because the kid, you know. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, we were in India recently. Uh, for three months, visiting various places, uh, serving the Lord in various capacities, particularly training 900 Christian leaders in effective evangelism and church planting. God is powerfully moving in that part of the world. Every time we go to India, God opens our eyes to see the new realities, new opportunities, new challenges, and new harvest fields. So we are so grateful to the Lord for the way he guides us. If you want to know more about our ministries, please you know, just visit this website. I haven't brought brochures. So just visit servingalongside.org and pray for us. So that is the end of commercial. All right. Um, let's uh, look at God's word now and... Uh, the scripture portion I have chosen this morning is a very familiar passage from the gospel according to John. Chapter 4, verses 27 through 34. Then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar... The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the field. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps, draws a wage, and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Most of you know the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. Well, this 
event happened in the first year of Jesus' ministry when he and his disciples were on the way from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. They were taking a shortcut through Samaria, which was not a common route for the Jews. And it was lunchtime when disciples had gone to town to fetch some lunch for themselves and for Jesus. And at that point, Jesus was tired from the journey, sat by the well. And here comes a woman, probably not expecting anyone to see there at the well at that time of the day to fetch some water, to take some water. And Jesus was there, and Jesus begins to talk to her. You know the story. Now when this woman begins to listen to Jesus, she immediately thinks, wow, he's a reformed Jew. And he must be a good reformed Jewish rabbi who needed some water. Now Jesus continues to talk more, and then this woman began to realize she is seeing in him more than a Jewish rabbi, but She is seeing him as a prophet probably could give her living water. And then Jesus continued to talk more and more about the worship and the community things. And then this woman began to realize as Jesus opens her eyes to see her own private life and see the truth about him who was talking to her and about God who seeks true worshippers. And this woman's eyes were opened wide and sees him as the Messiah. Immediately she leaves her water jar and then she runs into the town and tells them, Come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be Christ? The interesting part is, when disciples return with food, And they saw Jesus talking with woman, and they were surprised. But you know what? They never asked her name. That's why you don't see the name of this woman in chapter 4. They never asked Jesus what was the conversation or discussion is all about. In other words, they saw her as non-existent. Because of their their Jewish socio-cultural and religious background. But Jesus saw in her a great harvest field. Because this woman comes there who was probably widowed or exploited or abandoned by five husbands. Longing for love. Longing for grace. A longing for Messiah who would set her free. And then Jesus sees in her a great harvest field. But disciples had no clue. Then he tells to them, Behold, I say unto you, open your eyes. Look at the fields, for they are white for the harvest. So what do we learn from this story today? We cannot see the fields as ripe unless we understand God's heart and God's vision for the world. Unless we see 
God's plan for the world, there is no way that, we'll, that we will be able to see anything in front of us as God's plan. Jesus knew God's vision so closely. Because he was on his father's mission, he had no boundaries of race, ethnicity, sociocultural preferences, risk of enmity, not even human hunger. He was full and joyful when he saw this woman desperate for love and grace of God. The disciples who were predominantly Jews and fairly new on the team, they didn't know why they were followed. Many of them followed for varied reasons, right? And in fact, they were so active in baptizing more people than John the Baptist. But they were not seem to be excited about many Samaritans flocking towards Jesus and recognizing Jesus as the Savior of the world. The disciples have utterly failed in that. They have forgotten the great promise, the covenant promise that God made with their forefather Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 where we see that in all you, the, in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You look at that. When God chose Israel, God did not choose just Israel. He chose the whole world. But he chose Israel as a strategy to reach to the world. God chose Israel to be a moral nation, to shine before others. But they became so theocentric to the extent that the true God only belongs to them. They did not want to include Gentiles in the God's plan of salvation. They were more concerned about the covenant mark, which is circumcision, than the covenant itself. Think about Jonah, the prophet. When God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach the good news of repentance, he didn't want to go there because he knew God would change his mind for people's sake. He took the opposite direction, right? And even on the way, he, he chose death rather than seeing people repent. Look at the attitude. So Jesus had to repeatedly, time and again, go to the disciples to tell them, open your eyes. Look outside the box. To the people who they have labeled heretical, unclean, and hapless. He wants to bring their attention to the fields that were previously unseen or seen as unfit for harvest. Even after Jesus opened their eyes to see the way Jesus was seeing, they were not willing to open their eyes. So they were kind of Discussing who is the greatest among themselves. Even after that. That is so typical of us today. Think about Peter. He wouldn't want to go to Gentile house. Cornelius house. God had to intervene in his mental state. Give him a vision saying you should not call anyone unclean. Which I have purified. You cannot call unclean. Go there. You know, that didn't happen immediately. Do you know when, hap- when that happened? It happened almost 10 years 
after the Great Commission was given. Do you know that? For almost 10 years, the disciples would not risk themselves to break or destroy their socio-cultural boundaries and move beyond their comfort zones. Just 10 years. They were only roaming among their own people until that time. And it took a persecution that dispersed them into the world so that the gospel could be preached elsewhere. We are no different from those disciples. Knowing theology doesn't mean we are spiritual. Analyzing God's word deeply doesn't mean we know God intimately. Attending church regularly doesn't mean we are fulfilling the great commission of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many churches I have gone and preached in this world, probably in India or Singapore or United States, anywhere, I have seen people show up, pay up and shut up. They are faithful in showing up and they are faithful in paying their tithes and then faithful in saying, oh, this is not my responsibility. Let the pastor or pastoral team or the church staff take care of this. There are parachurch organizations. There are career missionaries. Let them do this. When someone tells them, as a Christian, you have the responsibility or you are called to serve, and then they quietly murmur, of course, I know that, but I'm not at ready. That's the response 26 years ago when God opened my eyes to the unreached people groups in India. I felt God was calling me to go to Himachal Pradesh, up north, two and a half days journey by train without reservation. And I went there. I know that I could be beaten up. I could be killed. I mastered the language and culture in like few months time and I began to preach. After six months, the people came to me and told me, wow, you're, you're preaching great. But I tell you, you better leave this place. If we find you doing this one more time, we will probably kill you. So if you want to save your life, you better leave. We are actually giving you first and last warning. And they left me. And then after six months again, they found me preaching the gospel in a bus stand. And almost six people came to me with clubs and rods. And they beat me like a dog when I was, you know, distributing tracts and sharing the gospel. And they thought they'd kill me. They wanted to escape, so they dragged me near the road and left me as dead. But I still had life in me. After 45 minutes, somehow, I was resuscitated by sprinkling water, and I limped back to the city. And I was still looking for souls, because I know the heart of the Lord. This life soon will pass away. How much do we live for him? I was so discouraged in that land because after serving there for two and a half years, not even a single soul I saw. But after 10 years, I get a call from there saying, Manohar, you sowed the seed. Today we have two Bible schools in this place. We have a dozen congregations that are thriving in this land. What a joy to hear that. We need to see 
the world through the eyes of Jesus. If we do not see the world through the eyes of Jesus, nothing will change us. Nothing will impact us. If you go to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 36, then you read, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed, helpless, and like what? Sheep. They were everyday crowds. They were not gathered just for a moment. They were everyday crowds that Pharisees, Sadducees, and the priests of the day were seeing every day, but never felt anything different. But Jesus saw them as helpless people, and he had compassion on them. You know, again, my story. When I was in my final semester of Bible seminary, I had an opportunity to intern at a church and live with uh, the family of pastor, the pastor's family. And one day, pastor's wife gave me uh, some money and told me, go and get me a detergent bar for washing clothes. I said, sure. So I took the money and then took the bicycle and went to the town. And I saw the crossroads uh, with the kind of roundabout. At the center, uh, there is a, a highly elevated statue, and there was a platform under the feet. So when I went uh, to the crossroads and I saw people were moving busy everywhere. As I was watching and I was somewhat bleeding in my heart, I was like, something is going on here. As I was watching, I saw all these people were slipping into hell. And I was feeling that and I didn't know what I was doing. So I ran to the center of this crossroads and I climbed onto the platform of this elevated statue. And I called everybody close to me. And then they were all rushing towards me thinking that I was going to commit suicide. So that was the time I began to share with them. This life will soon pass away. But that which is eternal, which is important for us. Do you want Jesus? I began to preach the gospel. I don't know how I was led. And after 45 minutes, I found myself near the roadside praying for several people. I went back home and uh, a pastor's wife saw me, asked me, Hello, Manohar. What's the good news? Why are you so happy, joyful? I said, no, nothing. But this is what happened. Oh, great. Praise God. And then where is my detergent bar? And I said, what detergent? I gave you money. Oh, really? I looked. There was money in my pocket. So I went back and brought. But anyway, the story is, the following Sunday, there were people in the church from that place. Had I not seen the people there through the eyes of Jesus, I would not be. I was just 20 years old. I was young. I would not put myself to shame. But because of the compulsion and compassion in the spirit, I ran and preached the gospel to them. Had I not preached there, probably half of that crowd would never know Jesus Christ. How do we respond to the gospel? When he saw crowds, he had a compassion on them. Friends, if we do not 
see the world through the eyes of Jesus, the fields wouldn't be visible to us as ripe for harvest. They're not visible unless you have the set of eyes of Jesus. So the question, when was the last time you read something about an unreached people group in a book or watched a video through the eyes of Jesus that gripped your heart? When was the last time you were moved with compassion when you heard about people groups that have never heard the gospel or name of Jesus? You can't feel the urgency in your soul unless you are compassionate. So we are called with Jesus to be on mission with him. A few months after Jesus told his disciples to open their eyes to see the fields as ripe, and he tells them, now the fields are ripe, but the fields are great in number. Means harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest so that he may not send rush people into his harvest field. He didn't ask them to, you know, recruit or force people along the way, but he told them, pray earnestly. I believe they did what Jesus said. That's why in Luke chapter 10, you see Jesus was sending a bigger group after a few months. By the way, for your information, when Jesus sent disciples, he didn't send in the morning and they came back in the evening and returned uh, with the report. No, that's not true. He sent them for one month. Even when Jesus sent the 72, he, will, he probably sent them for two and a half months. As far as I know as a theologian. So that means they were gone out by, totally by faith and in obedience and then they were preaching the gospel throughout. So he gave them a three, I mean the twofold strategy. The first one is praying for more laborers. We need to pray for more laborers. How many of you know this man? He's Hudson Taylor. In 1830s, when his parents, James and Amelia Taylor, a godly Methodist family, heard about the desperate need for missionaries in China. They began to weep before the Lord. Lord, please send some missionaries. China needs you. In 1832, when they, when they got a son, and they prayed in the hospital over their son, Lord, please send our son to China so that he may work for you. Well, he grew up knowing the Lord, but in his teens, he was backslidden. He didn't even believe on Jesus Christ for some reason. But parents did not lose hope. They continued to pray. When he was 17, he picked up a track from somewhere that changed his life forever. And then immediately he began to feel urge for work in China. And he felt like God is calling him to go there. So at the age of 21, he ended up there. Until that time, he didn't even know that his parents had prayed for long 21 years for him to be there. Well, he learned language. He learned culture. And he established 
CIM China Inland Mission which is called OMF today which sent more than 800 missionaries established 125 schools and won 18,000 people for Christ think about the prayer of his parents that changed the course of missions in China when was the last time you prayed for more gospel workers to be sent to Pakistan, to Iran, to Indonesia, to China, northern Nigeria, north Korea, where it is so difficult to preach the gospel. We often pray for workers that they may have provision, that they may have safety. But do we pray that God would send more workers? We do not. That's not our natural prayer. So we need to pray. So when you keep praying, sometimes God may choose you to go there. He may prepare your heart to go there. That's why Jesus gave the second strategy. Be ready to go. Be a lever. When Jesus sent the larger group of 72, none of them said, no, I'm not ready yet. They all were ready to go. And they came back with the results. They said, Jesus, we saw wonders. Even Satan obeys us in your name think about the 72 they were like truly intercultural they were intergenerational and probably gentile converts who did not know jewish theology or scriptures well but they were doing wonders because they obeyed the command of the lord jesus christ not because they know something else or they could even articulate the gospel well Probably they are more average than you and me with all the theology we have. So his true disciples are who? Say it louder. I think I want the conviction. Say it with conviction. I'm not getting that. His true disciples are? Uh, that is a little better. But not, but not sounding like Jackson uh, Church. His true disciples are? That's better. So the mark of true discipleship is making disciples. So we, we, we cannot just, you know, run our show like, yeah, we are Christians and then we know Jesus. No, that is not the mark of discipleship. You have to be a disciple maker in order to be a, a, a person involved in God's work. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be an evangelist. You don't have to be so-called deacon or career missionary. <laughs> if you're not gifted in any of those ministry offices, doesn't mean that you're free from the responsibility of the Great Commission either. You can be everyday missionary where you are because the Lord is bringing the nations, the communities, the ethnicity to your doorsteps. What are we doing about it? Missions don't simply mean that you go somewhere else. But God is bringing nations to your doorsteps and what we have done about it. I don't know whether you know anything about E.P. Scott. Reverend E.P. Scott was a missionary to India during 1800s. He felt incompetent in the mission field because of language and cultural differences. But he could beautifully play violin, which he carried everywhere he went. Right? So, in India, 
when he was going through the street, he found a man of strange appearance. So he called him and asked, you don't look like you belong here. Where are you from? Then he told him, I'm from blah, 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 in a mountain tribe. Then he asked him, do you know Jesus? He said, no, I have never heard about him. Immediately something gripped his heart. He was filled with compassion and he went back home and he began to kneel down. Lord, here is a tribe who have never heard the name of Jesus. Would you send me there? And he was almost prepared, but his fellow missionaries told him not to go there because it's a very, very dangerous to go there and preach the gospel. <clears throat> but even then he went there against the advice of his fellow missionaries. And as soon as he reached their mountain homes, he was met by a large group of warriors who quickly surrounded him, each one pointing his spear at his heart. So now, Scott knows that he is going to die in a few moments. So expecting to die, he decided to use his last breath to glorify God and die. So he took his violin and he began to sing along all hail the power of Jesus' name in their own language. He sang the first stanza, the second and third. Then beginning of the fourth, he realized he was still standing. He was not dead yet. And then everything was quiet around him. So he quietly opened his eyes and he saw every spear lowered and every eye was wet. They were in tears. He continued. At the end, they asked him, Scott, would you please tell us more about that God who saves the world? Would you come to us? So he goes there to their houses. He spends there two and a half years preaching the gospel and winning many, many souls to Jesus. Friends, we are living in a possibly best country in the world with tremendous religious freedom. You have 1,600 Christian radio stations that bombard with the gospel message. You have scores of Bible commentaries, dozens of Bible versions, and thousands of books, magazines on how to grow spiritually. And you have 200 pastors, sorry, you have one pastor for every 200 people in this country. And with all that spiritual heritage, you're supposed to be more spiritual and more missional than ever before. The result is we are running in opposite direction. You know, less than 35% of Christians attend the church regularly and read the Bible. 8 out of 10 people never share the gospel with their neighbors, with anyone for that matter. That is a statistic. While we are dusting off these commentaries, these Bible versions on our shelves, there are hundreds of countries in 1040 window which have never seen a single page of the Bible. I have heard stories of how churches in China at one time 
ripped off the pages of the Bible, passed on from one person to other. They copy down and hand it over to next people. And they put it together and they come back. The world is waiting while we are changing carpets in our churches, replacing with new chairs, new microphone system, things like that. Open your eyes. Look to the field. Harvest. So Mark Twain said, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. My version of that is the two most important days of your life are the day you are saved, the day you find out why. Think about it. I do not have much time. I need to rush back. And uh, here are the resources. Go pick up some information. Ponder on it. And pray over it. Pray, pray until you are satisfied in Him. Probably you take maybe one day in a week and fast. Oh God, one more worship. If it is me, I'm willing. Friends, Mercedes cars, Benz cars, you know, Porsche cars, big, big houses, they all will vanish. They all will disappear. But life is momentary. Use it for God. May God bless you.